and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jessica Silby, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Center for Law, Innovation, and Creativity at Northeastern University School of Law. We will discuss her essay, Photocopier, which will be included in the book, A History of Intellectual Property in 50 Objects, which will be published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome to the, welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you. <laughs> Great. So I was wondering if you could start by just telling listeners a little bit about the book project as a whole and how you came to get involved in it. Sure. Well, um, Cloudy and Dan, uh, Cloudy Opt-in Camp and Dan Hunter um, approached me to write a chapter for the book. Um, and there are 50 chapters in the book, but I didn't, I didn't know that when they asked me. And at first I sort of groaned. I think a lot of us, um, you know, we have a lot of things on our plate and we like to do things for our friends. And I just wasn't sure whether this was something that I could do. And then when they described the project to me, I got, I have to say, I got very excited. Um, so the book is um, a opportunity to introduce to non-lawyers, but people who are interested in contemporary culture, all the ways that intellectual property is relevant in, um, to relevant in their lives in unexpected ways through investigation of particular objects so the soccer ball, for example, or the light bulb, or Mattel's Barbie, or the corset, or in my case, the photocopy machine. So each short chapter is written by a different um, scholar in a very accessible way, um, sort of not, not academic prose as much as sort of many, many histories of the object to show how intellectual property law intervened in its production and cultural importance. So you wrote about the photocopier. How did you come to write about that particular object? Did Cloudy and Dan ask you to write about the photocopier or was that something you suggested or some combination of the two? Yeah. So they suggested it to me. And at first I thought, so I, I wrote back and said, I would love to hear more and why the photocopier um, and I think it was Dan who wrote back and said, well, um, you know, the photocopier is such an interesting, productive machine. Like it, it, it is, um, you know, it, it, in, he, 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 I can't exactly remember what he said exactly, but it was something about how, you know, it's for, it's for everyday use. And you are the kind of person who writes about intellectual property for everyday users. And so I think he was appealing to my, my own intellectual interests about how um, intellectual property facilitates or doesn't facilitate everyday creativity and innovation. So I think that's why he sort of assigned it to me. Mm. So the photocopier, I mean, it's it's such a familiar object, at least from my youth. It's like hard to imagine it not always existing in yeah. some way. <laughs> but like, so, so, so through your research and through writing about the photocopier, like, what did you find out about who invented the photocopier as we know it today and sort of what they were responding to? Like, what was the motivation for, for it? Sure. Um, so when I was assigned this chapter and I started digging in, one of the first things I did, as many professors do, is 
get some help. So I, I, I'm going to call out my research assistant at this moment and say Scott McFall was an extraordinarily excellent research assistant. And he and I um, uh, dug up, he dug up, and then we talked together a bunch of research on the origins of the photocopy machine. So um, it does have an origin, um, at least the, the way we understand the photocopy machine, which is the Xerox, called the Xerox machine. Uh, Chet Carlson, Chester Carlson, is the identified as the inventor of the Xerox machine. Um, and he was a guy that was born in 1906 in, in Washington state. Uh, and he was uh, working class supporting his parents, even through high school, there was illness in his family um, and scra scrabbled his way um, to New York to go to night school, law school at night, New York law school, actually. Um, worked in the patent office in PR Mallory and Company, which was a manufacturer for of electric components. He's sort of making his way as a, a young professional who interested in science, interested in chemistry. Um, and he actually had this problem that he had on a regular basis, which was um, through studying at night and his work during the day, his hand was cramping all the time from writing notes on all the work that he was doing. And he dreamed of a way to make that more easy, actually. So it was through everyday work and the challenges of the work he was doing, the copying of the notes for the patents and his law studies that he sort of dreamed up the idea of an automatic copying machine. It's so funny. It's like so much of invention seems to come from people kind of in identifying a problem in their lives and asking like, what would a solution to this problem look like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so many inventors describe, actually artists describe this too, um, that problem solving or sort of identifying a need is one of the primary motivations or incentives for creating or in, inventing new things. It's true. So is this something Carlson did on his own or were there other people involved and sort of what was the origin story of the technology in question? Yeah. So, um, so one of the reasons I really loved working on this um, short chapter is I thought the, the story of the photocopier embodied so many productive tensions that are in intellectual property generally between ownership and exclusivity and access and copying, for example. And the origin of the photocopier embodies this tension, not only because he is the inventor, he is the named inventor on the patent. And I think we can, we can call him that fairly. It, um, the major Xerox machine that became very, very popular has his name on the patent. But he worked with other people to, uh, to reduce it to practice and to commercialize it. So he worked in actually... Uh, his home laboratory was in Astoria in Queens, um, which was uh, actually in, it was like in the garage. It was, this is like, he was one of the garage inventors with a guy named Otto Cornet, um, who was a young German physicist. And, and together they made um, the first uh, effective reduction to practice of a xerographic copy on a piece of wax paper, which is today displayed in the Smithsonian Museum of American History. Um, and so he and Otto Cornet together actually originated the first impl implementation um, of the photocopier, but also um, the commercialization of it 
happened with Battelle Memorial Institute, which is a private nonprofit research company, and um, Halloid Company, which was a Rochester-based photo paper company um, that later became Xerox. And so the three mm. of them, Chet, um, Carlson, and these two companies, Battelle and Halloid, actually shared in the commercialization upside of the, the photocopy machine, the Xerox machine. Um, Otto Cornet uh, left early and went to work for IBM, as it turns out, who later sued Halloid, or Halloid sued IBM, I think, um, in a in an interesting, irony, ironic twist of um, fate. But uh, so no, it was it was a joint project. There was major collaboration, even though Chet Carlson, I think, is is seen as the originator. Yeah, and you suggest in the essay that they were like drawing on earlier work as well as so many inventors do. Yeah. Um, there was a guy, um, Paul Seleni, who was a Hungarian physicist whose research papers Chet um, had been studying to the information and the chemical uh, processes. And Paul Seleni has been called the father of xerography actually, but um didn't actually didn't come up with the machine itself. Yeah. So one of the things I really enjoyed in the essay was this sort of irony you point out between the sort of the nature of the patent claims around the the photocopier technology and the nature of or purpose of the underlying invention itself. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Right. So um, the, the machine that facilitated massive copying, and one could say copyright infringement, actually, is itself protected through patent law and was not allowed itself to be copied for, for decades. Right. So there's this, you know, um, the... The, the the exclusivity over the machine um, is one thing, but what the machine facilitates, which is which is rampant and productive or or consumptive copying, which is a different kind of infringement possibly, is another thing. And I just I thought that was too delicious not to not to point <laughs> out. So uh, to the extent you were able to identify this in your research, like what kind of uses did Carlson initially anticipate for the co- photocopy machine, like sort of what 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 problem or problems yeah. was he most intent on solving, and like to what extent did he anticipate how people would ultimately use the device yeah. that that he shepherded into the world? Well, it's um he his the information that we have about him describes him very much hoping that the machine would be used for educational and research purposes, that it would be a supplement to the kind of progress that we typically imagine intellectual property is supposed to promote. Um, It was going to help people learn and it was going to help people um, do more research or um, generate new ideas. So I, I, he, you know, he was imagining exact copying, but exact copying that was, an intermediary for other creative um, work. I I think he did not, there's no evidence that he thought that it was going to um, replace published books in the marketplace, for example, or that it was going to cut into 
um, revenue for photography, for example, that I, I there, there's no evidence of that uh, at all. So he, he was really thinking of it as an aid, as a tool for creativity and innovation. Right. And, and so today, I mean, like I said earlier, we really, I feel like it's so easy to take photocopy technology so much for granted, but but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sort of social impact of the introduction of low cost reproduction via photocopier in in the moment. Like, how did it affect sort of how people thought about copying, reproduction, publication, and you even talk a little bit about the the practice of law and sort of how yeah. the photocopier affected the the practice yeah, of law. Well- Right. So, I mean, in that last point, um, the the lawsuit between IBM and Xerox was a notoriously um, contentious one. And the volume of discovery in that um, in that lawsuit is emblematic of what we see today. Now we see it's all digital. But can you imagine what discovery would look like before there was a photocopy machine? (laughs) You know, I mean, the fact that you can make copies of so many different papers and then throw thousands of boxes at your adversaries uh, changes the nature of litigation. I mean, just completely changes the nature of litigation. So um, there were other, when you, when you look at the social impact of, of, of um, photocopying, there's all sorts of very interesting things you find. So um, one example that comes up in a lot of books on popular culture and uh, American culture is um, shopping lists and, um, so when you're registered for um, a wedding, it used to be that you would, um, you know, you'd go around and, and take notes or the notes would be in a, um, in the shop itself. But there's, there are these funny little vignettes about how, um, how being able to hand out the things you want on your registry to other people through the photocopy machine facilitated a whole industry of showers and, um, and, and wedding registries and things like that. That is being able to make lists and distribute the lists very easily changed the administration of certain social activities. So that's, that, that was unexpected. I just wasn't not, um, not being of that world really. And there was, um, there are people of course who make art with, photo uh photocopiers um you can search that online mm-hmm. uh and p- the political uses of uh photocopiers are also pretty rampant i mean the idea of making copies of a flyer and putting it all over your community um uh makes public expression and political expression that much easier Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, the sort of, I couldn't help but think that like the social impact of reducing the cost and difficulty of reproducing and sort of facilitating the dissemination of of works of various kinds in a lot of ways was sort of like almost like an echo or like a anticipation of the kinds of social changes that we saw with the internet, like kind of like creating these potential network effects that hadn't previously been possible for people who hadn't previously been able to take advantage of them. Well, certainly both the downside and the upside. I mean, if you, um, I mean, the the debate about the um, VCR in the eighties about whether this machine was going to replace movies and um, and kill the kill the um, 
kill Hollywood, for example, or whether it was going to be just a totally new industry and that we were going to have different opportunities and more opportunities to experience movies. It's the same kind of question. Every device, every copying device that is brought online, VCR wasn't online, but now we have, you know, TiVo, um, the MP3 player, but now we have um, all sorts of, you know, online listening devices. I mean, all of these are have origins in the copy in the copy machine of some kind. I mean, and we can also talk about photography mm. being an early form of copy a copy machine too, but a different a different kind entirely. Um, so yeah, uh, it 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 promotes a lot of progress, but it also cuts into markets that are established and fought over. Mm -hmm. Like a really any kind of disruptive technology, it seems like sort of forces established market relationships or market actors to sort of renegotiate what their role, if any, is in the sort of new equilibrium, as it were. Yeah. And there's so much fighting to maintain um, one's status or position in the market. And um I think one of the things that intellectual property challenges us to think hard about is is how evolution off one's privileged position of market dom dominating space is just the nature of things. Like you only get a patent for so long, you know, copyright is supposed to expire, for example, you know. So these things, they're supposed to give way to other things. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the it's hard. It's hard to give those things up. Um uh, for sure. Mm. But all technology is supposed to evolve. Right, right. Well, so in the course of your research into the photocopier, was there anything that you found that you really liked or enjoyed or wanted to include but weren't able to fit into the essay itself? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the law professor in me wanted to talk about all the cases about photocopiers there are so many and they have they have interesting characters and um you can always tell pretty interesting david goliath stories or stories about universities or public publishing companies so um there are a whole bunch of cases that i was interested in but didn't really put in so things like that but um the, the, one of the benefits of being forced to write a five-page essay for a popular audience is that you really do distill it to the things that are, that should be said and leave out all the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. So how about that? I mean, what was the experience of writing this essay as compared to sort of the more typical law review format that, that we write in? I mean, I know that you're really prolific and you've worked in a lot of different areas, but, but I, I wonder sort of like how the experience of writing for this particular, in this particular format for this particular audience was, was different and how you approached it. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I think it's, I'm so glad that I was asked to do it. Um, and I'm glad that Dan pushed me because it was fun. Um, and it, it's liberating in many ways. And, Frankly, as a teacher, not only as a as a legal scholar, you know, you want to be able to reach as many different kinds of people as possible. That is, you you want you want to figure out how to to cultivate a diverse audience, and um, and uh, this this it was you know you write shorter sentences, you you maybe exaggerate just a little bit more to make a point. Um, uh, I think you could have you don't have to have a I mean, as I try to be objective and, and accurate, 
but you can also have a sort of a pretty clear view or positioning in the world. Um, and so that's fun too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I frankly, I hate writing law review articles. I'll just say that. <laughs> and I, I'm, I, I'm working on my, uh, another book right now. And in many ways, I think the more and more I write books, the more I am just drawn to, uh, that voice, that mm. sort of a, a broader voice. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I like about the intellectual uh, history of intellectual property and 50 objects book in general, and in your essay in particular, is the kind of choice and use of images. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, like yeah. sort of what role, if any, did you have in selecting the images and um, sort of what, yeah. what, what were the thoughts there? So, um, when I submitted the essay, I submitted all the underlying material for the essay. So, so there were a lot of footnotes that they took out, for example, and I had a lot more sources that were not cited. And much of the images came from those sources. So um, the only image that did, I can't remember whether the image that they included, which is of a face pressed up against a photocopy machine plate, you know, I don't know if we ever young and played with the photocopy machines and like took pictures of your hand took pictures of your cheek, you know, Mm -hmm. my children take pictures of all different body parts, you know, Um, (laughs) there is is one, there's one image in the book of a face pressed up against a plate. I don't remember that being in the materials that I sent, but the image of Patty Hill installing her art show called common objects, which are, photocopy images of common objects, for example, that was in one of the um, pieces that I sent them. And also the um, the first electrostatic Xerox print, which is in the Smithsonian National Museum of History, American History, was also in one of the um, one of the uh, sources that I sent them. So, so, so Jessica, in, in closing, um, a lot of your work has dealt with similar subject matter, um, including a lot of work on photography in many different registers. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the work you're doing in that area in a general sense and how how this essay on the history of the photocopier might have intersected with some of your work, um, some of some of your other scholarship. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I spend a lot of time doing research in practice communities, uh, digital photographers, for example, sculptors, uh, uh, bench scientists and pharmaceutical companies. I mean, I go to those places and study the people who are doing that work uh, and collect information, observational information, interview information, things like that. So empirical work and a qualitative nature. And um, I do that in order to figure out how the law broadly construed patent law or copyright law or trademark law or whatever is uh, infiltrating or acts in their life. Uh, So instead of thinking about law from the, what I would think of as the inside out, um, the statutes and the court cases and the lawyers, that, that being the inside realm of law and thinking, how does that project out into the world? I'm studying um, the law as it's instantiated by everyday creative and innovative practices on the ground. And I, I do that. Um, well, one, because it's not done very often. And I think it's important. I think it's important to figure out how sort of elite formal um, 
area of law lives elsewhere, where most of us live, actually. I, I think that's an important information to gather and to understand. Um, but, but also as a reform project, I think intellectual property generally is pretty out of touch with everyday creative and innovative practices. And if we think that it needs to be changed to address real needs in those fields, I think we need to figure out how those fields work um, to promote the kind of differences that we think law should promote. Um, and so this project, um, so yeah, so I've st- I'm doing a big project on digital photography right now. And it's going to be part of a new book that I'm writing. Also work I'm doing with Eva Subotnik and P- um, Peter DeCola. But this particular chapter was sort of a mini exercise in that, you know, how did, how did the formal intellectual property patent right come out of this very complicated and interesting uh, story about Chet Carlson and all his collaborators and business um, partners, um, and what was its effect in in everyday life? Cool. Well, I hope we can have you back on the podcast to talk about um, one of your new uh, one of your new academic projects in photography as well. Oh, I would love to do that. Uh, I would really love it. Thanks for having me. Okay. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you about this uh, cool project. And like everyone else, I'm looking forward to seeing the final book. Yeah, me too.
memory to share. Wonder about that brand new parking lot.